tonight. We're happy to see this many people out to uh, talk about Winnipeg history. It's not often the response you get when you host a local history event. Um, I'm Sabrina, in case you recognize the voice without the name. This is Alex, of Hello. course. And our friend and producer Nick is all the way at the back with the camera over there. So, <laughs> if you don't know who we are and you just come because it's a free event with food, um, we are the hosts of One Great History. It is a Winnipeg history podcast, and we have been going through a Winnipeg's 150 series that's culminating today and kind of tomorrow because Winnipeg turns 150 today. Sort of. Sort of. Depends who you ask. <laughs> so the incorporation papers are signed on November 8th, 1873, but we don't get like a civic government and it doesn't really take effect until 1874. So for the city of Winnipeg, they will be celebrating in January going forward into the year. So we're just kind of getting in on the trends in the grant money a little bit early is what's happening here. <laughs> so if you don't know what the series is and you haven't listened, we are talking about 50 different Winnipeggers across 150 or so years. We stretched that a little bit or a lot. We went back to the glaciers at one point, so we went pretty far back. Yeah. So uh, tonight we're going to be talking about some uh, people we could have covered, some alternative ideas for what we could have done, and then I put 150 candles into a jeans cake and took a picture of it. <laughs> We were supposed to bring it here, but Sabrina couldn't fit it back into the cake box. It turns so. out 150 candles is a lot, and the boxes are made for that. So I didn't bring it through security at the library, for what I think are obvious reasons. Okay, so we will get started. Um, what I thought would be fun is to talk about some people we could have covered and some like alternative options we could have done for the 150 series. We had a list of like 40 people we wanted to talk about, which was a lot. It took us a while to whittle it down to 15, for sure. And there were definitely, like, you could take any 15 Winnipeggers and tell a wildly different story of the city. Yeah, so I think we wanted to tell a story that, like, encompassed a lot of different perspectives and type of stories. Yeah. So, here's if we hadn't done that. <laughs> all that careful selecting. <laughs> Our first version is, whoops, all mayors. This is the low effort version. It's pretty much exclusively white men. And we start, as always, with Francis Evan Cornish. He is Winnipeg's first mayor. You would have to start the story here. And we did talk about Cornish. Of course, I don't think you can talk about Winnipeg without him. And he's come up in other episodes we've done too. Anything from like 1870 to 1880, Cornish kind of comes up as a figure. He was a rabble rouser, he was a drunk, he was corrupt, the source of all kinds of scandals. So he would be a really strong start if we're trying to talk about Winnipeg as a city and how we kicked off. <laughs> And then we go into Elias George Conklin. He's not super notable other than this is one of the that's worst a, pictures I've ever seen of a human man. That looks like a police sketch of a person. <laughs> I, right? To be clear, I have not seen Sabrina's portions of this. This is the first time I've seen this photo. <laughs> I actually wasn't going to put him on here because I didn't find him that interesting. And then I saw the picture and went, no, he deserves a spot. Yeah. <laughs> then we get into Gatling Gun Thomas Sharp, who... Uh, was mayor in the 1906 streetcar strike. Okay. And he got his nickname because when the strikers were on the street, he called in the military and the Gatling guns. Oh, great. And you can see, actually, we have some beat-up streetcar windows there. So Winnipeg has a tried-and-true tradition of destroying streetcars and strikes. <laughs> and after the strike, the Tribune never let go of that nickname, Gat Gatling gun. That stuck with him his entire career. <laughs> We're moving then into James Ashdown, who was a pretty prominent business owner. He had been in Winnipeg since like the 1860s. He was arrested by Louis Riel. And if you know anything about him, you probably know his buildings. So we have, of course, the McKim building or the Ashdown store, his warehouse, which is now condos, and of course, 529 Wellington, which was his house. So he was a pretty wealthy guy. He was mayor twice. 
and then left to just pursue business interests. Then we get into Thomas Russ Deacon. Russ Deacon is the sort of creator of the Winnipeg Aqueduct. So it's his idea that he begins to spearhead, and because of this, Winnipeg gets clean drinking water for up to about a million people, and the community of Shoal Lake loses access to a road for about 100 years. Yeah. So go civic progress. <laughs> it's not a great legacy. This, now, is, this is why it's weird to talk about celebrating Winnipeg's birthday. <laughs> yeah, and to do a series that's all mayors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an illustration of him. He's holding a bridge because he was president of the... Um, Manitoba Bridge and Ironworks. This is from a series called Manitobans as we see them. Do you know what that is? I have no idea. It's a bunch of illustrations of Manitobans from about 1908-1909. Okay. And it gives a lot of prominent Manitobans huge heads. <laughs> so. Oh. Uh, and tiny horse. Yeah, right? It's often just tied to like what they did either for work or for a hobby. Like there's people curling with the biggest heads you've ever seen. There's also. <laughs> Um, that's, that's going some, is that what it says? That's going some, and then the car is called the Top Notcher. Ah. This is a Joseph Ma, he, oh, he ran a car dealership in the city. That's why he's in a car. Uh, and then we get uh, David D J. Dyson. Also not a super interesting mayor. He was mayor for a couple of weeks. He was president of the Seven Day Pickle Company. Okay. I don't know what that means. <laughs> they make pickles in seven days? That sounds like a bad pickle. Right, exactly. The reason I included him is his great-grandson is actually someone interesting. Jake Tapper with CNN. I don't know how that happened, but Jake Tapper has a Winnipeg connection. And we get into Charles Gray. He's the mayor during the Winnipeg general strike. Of course, we talked about a bit in our strike episode. Yeah. He would be an interesting guy to do one day in that, like, his labor policies weren't as hard as some of, like, the other people on council, but also he had a lot of, like, really weird politics. And shockingly, he was only mayor for a year. <laughs> he well, was elected in 1919 and left in 1920. <laughs> I mean, I can't blame him for that. No, that'd be a rough year to start with. For sure. Um, after Gray, though, we get Frank Oliver Fowler. Fowler was on council during the strike and before it. Do you remember we talked about the Fowler Amendment in our series at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> so um, Frank Oliver Fowler was the city councilor that basically banned civic workers from striking in 1918. This oh. is the reason we have a city strike in 1918. Right. He becomes mayor after that. Okay. Yeah. It's a lot of anti-labor stuff. We also have a Seymour Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know if anyone got <laughs> See, I texted Alex before this, being like, if I Photoshop a cat, like a farmer's hat onto Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors, is this a joke anyone will forget, or is this just for me? And Alex said, I think it'll be fine. And the response of the room tells me it was lukewarm at best. <laughs> so Seymour Farmer, we did talk about in the 150 series as well. He was pro-labor, he was anti-booster, so it wasn't like big on growing Winnipeg. He was big on like improving the city and not bringing yeah, in Yeah, he wanted to like make um, the streetcar service public, that kind of thing. Yeah. And shockingly, council didn't like him. Hmm. <laughs> so he's not mayor for very long. Then we get into John Queen, who was of course a strike leader that becomes mayor in the 1930s. Yeah. His like progressive policies have kind of like petered out a bit by the 1930s. Like Helen Armstrong was calling him like a traitor essentially <laughs> by that point in some pretty angry speeches she was giving. Oh no. So he's mostly big on like housing reform. Then we get into Garnet Coulter, who is described as fair but dull. 
<laughs> on the website bio. That would have been a great way to finish off the series. If yeah, fair but dull, whatever. Um, then we get into Stephen Juba, of course. You can't talk about Winnipeg without talking about him because he's mayor for so long. Yeah. A chunk of the city's decisions are because of Juba. I don't know why he's doing this in the picture. There's a lot of photos of Juba where he's just kind of doing something. He's just like, got a tiger cub. And it's still like, I've looked into the tiger cub thing. He seems to have gotten it from the zoo and then tried to give it to someone. No, he didn't even get it from the zoo. He got it from someone and tried to give it to the zoo. I think he tried to give it to the zoo. And the zoo said, we don't want this weird tiger cub, Stephen. (laughs) And then he was like, I'll give it to North Dakota then. Yeah. And then I don't know what happened to it after that. And then, of course, we get into uh, more current stuff, which is why we stopped kind of doing the series in 1980, because William Norrie's also not the most exciting. (laughs) Yeah. He was around. He uh, made Super Tramp. Uh, honorary citizens of Winnipeg. Oh, okay. I thought you were just saying he made Super Tramp. I'm like, no. I don't think that can't possibly be true. That would be crazy. Uh, and then we get into Susan Thompson. So these are people that are still alive and in the city, and it would be really weird to try and do a history of their life yeah. when they're still here. Um, so what I will say about Susan Thompson is that in around 2012, she pitched building a laser pyramid at Portage in Maine as a tourism idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I know what a laser pyramid is. I don't know either. Okay. <laughs> I think it was an idea she had and just told people. Okay. I mean, that's very Stephen Juba energy, honestly. Right, yeah. He wanted to make a Mardi Gras for the city, yeah. right? And then we end, we would end probably with Glenn Murray, because I think if we get into the Sam Katz era, we get maybe a little dicier. Right. <laughs> but Murray also had some pretty, like, progressive ideas and was pretty involved in, like, the gay rights movement in the 1980s and 90s before he became mayor. That would have been really interesting to talk about. Okay. Because Winnipeg actually has a really interesting history of queer activism around that time, especially during the height of the, like, HIV-AIDS epidemic. hmm Because they're, like, I think the medical clinic on Osborne was started as a, like, clinic to treat gay men, specifically. Huh. Okay. So it would have been a really cool way to kind of talk about activism yeah. in the series, but... We did not do this one because, again, it's mostly white men. Yeah. And, like, Juba was notable because he wasn't white because he was Ukrainian. <laughs> so that's the diversity of this series. One, one woman, one Ukrainian, and... That's the Winnipeg special. Yeah. Now, so, so we decided not to do that. We didn't do that one. And then I thought, what we could do instead is what I have been calling uh, Nightmare Mode. <laughs> is this just the worst Winnipeggers? Yes. Okay. This is if we wanted to take Winnipeg, a city that we have mixed feelings about and wanted to make it look like a city that uh, floods, that is riddled with bugs, and it is just like frozen for half the year. This is the worst version of Winnipeg we could have presented to the public, and it's why we didn't do it. I don't think we would have gotten grant funding if we did this. <laughs> no, I think it would have been hard to pitch as a centennial series. Mm-hmm. So we would start with this one with uh, Miles McDonnell. He's the HBC governor that gets off to a very rocky start um, by arriving and promptly declaring he owns all of the land and everyone else can leave. And then bans like Pemmican trade. He's basically the reason the battle at Seven Oaks happens. We would then do the Red River Flood of 1862. There's a lot of floods on this list because that's, I feel like, a big part of early Manitoba history. Yeah, well, this flood was enormous also. This is more for, like, living in boats Yeah. for a while. And I think there was some story that, like, Seven Oaks House, people were staying on the second floor. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. And we would go into John Christian Schultz, who I'm, we've talked about before. I assume we will talk about again, maybe in your section. Who knows? Oh. You have to wait and see. I did see one of your slides because it was just... How a- dare you? <laughs> You put the text so big. I couldn't miss it. Uh, Christian Schultz was once described as like, ah, oh, it's a pity we knew him after we died. So Alex will talk about him more later. Then we go to Thomas Scott, who was, of course, the man that Louis Riel executed, the rabble rouser, his provisional government did, I should say. Yeah. Rabble rouser, kind of a weird guy, no like discernible goals or actions in life. I don't really know why he was like, doing anything he may, did. Maybe mentally ill. Yeah. I don't know. Kind of erratic, kind of weird. Yeah. Very racist. 
uh, the Grasshopper Plague of 1874. This was so notable, in fact, that um, a bunch of Manitoba's wheat had been destroyed. And if you go to look at City Hall's old cornerstone, there are um, grasshoppers. This is actually a picture from the city archives. These are the grasshoppers that uh, destroyed all of our wheat crop that year. That they like put in there intentionally. They didn't just like... They weren't in there accidentally. They also put some wheat they destroyed. Uh, Francis Evan Cornish makes the list again. <laughs> he will be a recurring character. And we got into Alexander Pantages. So he has kind of like a tenuous Winnipeg connection. We both talked about him a little bit when we used to do tours. Yeah. What do you know about Pantages? Um, I know that he basically like took advantage of a woman for several years. <laughs> I mean, basically, he, so he was like, he never really lived in Winnipeg. He was up in Dawson where he met Klondike Katie Rockwell, who's this like theater owner and like vaudeville entertainer. He like seduces her, they get engaged, and then he proceeds to leave her for another woman. Didn't, wasn't he like taking her money also in the yes. meantime? Yeah. Yeah, he stole her money. And then she sues him for breach of engagement. Mm -hmm. Which was a thing you could do back then. Yeah, if you got engaged and the man left, you could sue them. You can't do that anymore. Um, so what he gave her instead was the price of a train ticket to go back up north. Oh, brutal. And then there's some stories of drunk driving later on in his life. He's not a great guy. Yeah. Also, um, the Pantages Theater reenacted the sinking of the Titanic in 1914. <laughs> oh, that's, that's real early. Right? They brought a big tub of water and then like a model boat and a model iceberg out into the stage. No. <laughs> and the band played a slow, mournful song. <laughs> so then we get into A.J. Andrews. He is our Committee of 1000 leader. Mm -hmm played excellently in the Strike uh, musical yeah. by that one local guy who's in old Hallmark movies did you I watched. Not, did you not learn his name for no. this? <laughs> okay. No, I didn't remember to. I yeah. forgot I was going to give him a shout out, but he's the best character in the Strike movie because the guy's got a good, good villain energy. He's got very good villain energy. And A.J. Andrews is a great villain. He yeah. is staunchly opposed to labor. He heads the Committee of 1000, which is this big anti-Strike group that's like really secretive and publishes these like really controversial newspapers full mm -hmm. of vaguely racist ideas. Yep. He also uh, got into a fight with my uh, local, uh, my favorite local Winnipegger, Ginger Snooks. Yes. In 1916. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad there was a response of the crowd for that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, we don't know what the fight was about. All I know is that afterwards, Ginger Snooks goes to a local parade with a big sign saying, all lawyers are crooks, especially AJ Andrews. <laughs> We got uh, then William Whitaker, who we have talked about in an episode before uh, this 150 series. He was the head of our local nationalist party in the 1930s. Mm. So basically a big old Nazi. He had a framed picture of Hitler at all of his meetings. He convinced some Mennonite guy to print his newspapers. And the guy got out of trouble for it twice by saying, oh, I wasn't reading what I was printing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ken Leishman, who was, of course, uh, the gold bandit. So we got right. some fun uh, true crime in here, some robbery. Uh, and then we get into more current history, and when I started feeling uh, weird describing Winnipeggers as dirtbags, <laughs> oh, no. I think the closer we get to recent history, the more I'm like, oh, maybe we'll just do like weather events. Yeah. So uh, the River Flood of 1948. This is was one of the biggest floods we had had until, of course, the flood of 1950. <laughs> this is the one where basements flood. We talked about this, of course, in our ballet episode because the ballet had to reschedule a performance last minute. Yeah. Uh, and then. There's the blizzard of 1986. <laughs> it's a lot of weather. Yeah, I mean, if you get into, like, new stuff, it feels weird, though, right? You didn't want people, like, writing us letters being like, we heard you were at the library and called me a dirtbag. <laughs> or, like, you called my grandma something, my grandma yeah. something weird. So, yeah, the blizzard of 1986 uh, is something that was not on either of our, like, radar until we started the series, because 
we're not alive for it, and it's not quite what people would call history yet. Yeah. So, huge blizzard. It was like, what, 10 to 15 centimeters of snow? Oh, more. It's 35. 35, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, lots and lots of snow. We had people telling us about, like, snowshoeing yeah. around their neighborhoods and stuff. Um, then, of course, the flood of 97. This one I was alive for. <laughs> and then, I thought we would end on a real person. Sandcats. <laughs> <laughs> And I think we would have focused entirely on the time he uh, kicked a small child in the face while playing soccer. It's only so far we could have taken that, so. Yeah, but that is, I think, one of our favorite Winnipeg videos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's this one, and then uh, my third one was, they don't even go here. This includes some people that we could have talked about and didn't because they left, and then some people that we claim are Winnipeggers but probably aren't. Right. So, of course, we're going to start with Al Capone. Um, everyone has an Al Capone story in the city. It seems like there's no evidence he was actually here. So like, far as like I can not tell. at all? No. Okay. Everything I found is like, well, someone said it could be possible he stayed at the Woodbine Hotel, but there's no paper records of it. No one remembers it. <laughs> we just really, really wish that he had been here one time. One article I saw said it was plausible because of his activity on the prairies. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. We'll probably never know. Uh, then, of course, Deanna Durbin, who we did talk about. The thing with Deanna Durbin is that she became one of like the highest-paid high women in the world in the 1940s as this big Hollywood star. She was born in Winnipeg. She moved out of here by the time she was like two and barely ever came back unless it was to visit her grandma. Yeah. She was not in Winnipeg that often. Right. Uh, Monty Hall, who was from Winnipeg. He went to the U of M. And then he goes to L.A. because apparently CBC stopped hiring him for programs. I also think we didn't talk about him because neither of us would understand the math well enough to explain the Monty Hall problem. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that was the one issue, too. Is like, if we talk about Monty Hall, we do have to talk about that. We do have to learn mathematics, yeah. And we're not doing that for the show. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then there's the Beatles. What? Have you not heard the Beatles' Winnipeg connection? No, I don't think so. In 1968, they landed here. Oh. <laughs> and then they left. They didn't even get off the plane. Oh, it's like a I, okay. It's like a layover. There's a picture of them waving out of the airplane. And that's it. That's our Beatles connection. Uh, Neil Young, who was born here, came back for a little bit for high school. He was in the Squires. Uh, this is Neil Young right there. So he played here for a little bit, and then, of course, he also left to go pursue music somewhere else. Maybe one of the slightly more legitimate ones. Yeah, I think it's one we could actually make a case for. But if we're doing a series where we want to talk about people who were like in Winnipeg the entire time and like their impact on the city, yeah. Neil Young was only here for high school, realistically. Yeah. Uh, Terry Fox, who was also born here, which I did not realize until I started looking into this. Yeah. He left when he was about like two or three. He was quite young when he moved away. But it's still one of those things like, well, he was born here, so he's with us for life. Yeah. Um, Super Tramp the Band. <laughs> so here's the thing I learned looking into this Winnipeg. Throughout Supertramp's history, has had some bizarre fascination with them. Okay. <laughs> like, in the newspapers, they're like, no matter what Supertramp puts out, Winnipeg loves it. And they will turn out, even though Winnipeg's rock community doesn't turn out for anything else. So um, they were made honorary Winnipeggers in 1978. <laughs> cool. We also have Anna Paquin, who was born here. This is her filming a movie in the city. I don't think she's ever really talked about being from Winnipeg. But she is occasionally returned. Yes. To film movies. For work. Yeah. The movie was Blue State. Blue State. Thank you, Nick. I knew you would know. Um, and Homer Simpson's actually an honorary Winnipegger, in case no one knew. So how is he an honorary Winnipegger? They mentioned Winnipeg one time on the show. Not even that. It's that 
the show's creator, um, Matt Groening. Matt Groening, yeah. I was thinking of someone else whose last name was Groening and got confused there. Um, his family's from the prairies, essentially, oh. but like it's like his dad is from Saskatchewan. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out. Nick, do you know what's going on with well, that? His dad is named Homer. His dad is named Homer, and now Homer is an honorary Winnipegger. Got it. Uh, Green Day. Green Day was here uh, before they were famous. They played at the Royal Albert Hotel. This is the ad for their show. This is like right before Dookie came out and they got like big, big. They have come back since, but we could claim that they started here if we really wanted to, if we were desperate. Uh, Patrick Swayze also filmed a movie here. <laughs> um, in his uh, 50s, it's a dance movie. He was apparently pretty old. This movie has bad reviews. <laughs> but if we wanted to swing this, I think we could have swung it talking about the way Winnipeg is used as uh, alternative cities. They use the exchange for like... Every Hallmark film. Every Hallmark film. Um, Chicago sometimes. They use um, the Burton Cummings in this movie because I watched the trailer and I recognize the theater. Mm -hmm. So they use like our local venues in it. I think we could talk about the role our heritage plays in film. Yeah. We could have. We could have made it work if we wanted to. But it felt like a stretch. <laughs> and then uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, who was also made an honorary Winnipegger. And we could have talked about Winnipeg's uh, weird fascination with wrestling. Yeah. Which we seem to have quite a big one. They don't fully understand it because they don't know enough about wrestling for it to make sense. And then we could, Jake Tapper? <laughs> I think. Jake Tapper again? Okay. Yeah. Well, I worked him in at the end. I thought, like, yeah, we can start claiming him now. We know that his great grandfather's from here. He's one of us forever. Yeah. This is a thing that Winnipeg loves to do is we're like, we think this person was here once. Once. And they belong to us now. Yeah. And my final round is a mystery one. Okay. Because I want you to guess what these people have in common. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you just going to like read them off rapid fire and then I guess? Yes. Okay. You're not going to know many of these people. Oh, no. <laughs> I famously, for people who don't listen to the podcast very often, have like basically never seen a single film. <laughs> oh, these aren't actors. Oh, they're not actors? No, there's no reason you would ever know these people. Oh, these are just like... These are Winnipeggers. I, I, I assumed that this was going to be you making fun of my lack of pop culture knowledge. <laughs> no, this is me making fun of a niche area of Winnipeg history. Okay. All of these people have worked for one organization. Okay. Uh, there's Daniel Hunter McMillan, Samuel Spink, Nicholas Balfe, George Reed and Crow, William Linton Parrish, Alvin Keyes Godfrey, John Esterbrook Broderell, James, er, James Armstrong Richardson. That name might sound familiar. Uh, James Alexander Crow, Henry Eugene Sellers, George S. Matheson, Frederick William Parrish, George W.P. Heffelfinger, <laughs> William Bruce Parrish, and Cliff Schwartz. And if you're wondering, the Crows and the Parishes are all related. Those are all father-son duos. Oh, is that a hint? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not helping you out at all here. Okay, I mean, we've got like, I thought maybe at first we were doing like a funny name thing with like Spink and Balf. <laughs> yeah, Spink is a funny name. Yeah. Right. No. Um, so Balf should sound familiar because it is a building in the Exchange District. Which building? Balf Block. It's part of Red River College. Okay. Don't know. That, that might also have been a hint. <laughs> I'm not helping, Alex, and this is maybe not going to be the most fun for you, and I'm sorry, but I wanted to bully my friend. No, I have, I have literally no idea. Um, I mean, we've got Richardson here. Mm -hmm. uh, nope, I've, I've got nothing. <laughs> What's like a prominent Winnipeg organization that I always joke we're going to talk about, but don't want to? I, the Grain Exchange? Yes. Oh my god. Yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> These are all presidents of the Grain Exchange. That so would it's... have been the worst series. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Want to hear about farmers for 15 episodes? 
It's, it's all wheat-based all the time. It's incredible that I guessed that based on, we don't want to talk about this thing. I've made, I've made a lot of jokes about talking yeah. about it. <laughs> so those were some things we uh, could have done but didn't, because they're obviously all very bad ideas. I'm happy with the list we wound up with. But we did cut a lot of people we wanted to talk about and probably will in the future, so we thought we'd give kind of like sneak peeks into some stuff. So I'm going to pass it off to Alex, who will tell us about one of our first uh, cut figures from our list. Yeah, Henry McKenney. Okay, so Henry McKenney, um, he came from Eastern Canada, which at the time, this is like... Who back, didn't? Well, yes, this is back in like Red River days, so that was actually all of Canada at the time. Um, and we don't know a ton about his early life, like we know who his parents were, but all we really know is that he had a wife, um, several children, and then he left Eastern Canada because he had some failed businesses. So he came to reinvent himself. I mean, and also, who didn't? Well, all the, yeah, I mean, that was kind of Winnipeg's shtick for a while, right? It was like, you failed in Ontario. You can well, come here and say you're a doctor, and we'll believe you. <laughs> More on that to come. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so he came aboard uh, the Alsop Northup, which was actually the first steamship to come uh, up Red River to Fort Gary. Oh. So not a lot of people here. It was 1859. Um, he came with his wife and one of his sons, and he um, acquired a building from Andrew McDermott, which he turned into the Royal Hotel. Mm -hmm. So this was the first hotel in Manitoba, actually. Kind of wild to start a hotel in 1859. How many people were there? Not a lot. And I guess it would depend on how many more are like coming through. Well, this is probably more the thing, right? That people were coming through and might stop and stay. And actually, he does seem to do pretty well because that first winter, he writes to a relative of his in eastern Canada and asks them to come and join him. Oh. Do you want to guess who this relative might be? Oh, no. Is it John Christian Schultz? John Christian Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> This is the slide I saw. This is why I knew he was going to be in this. Okay, but you remember who John Christian Schultz is, right? Yeah, no one liked him. No, this is basically the thing about him. He's like kind of a huge jerk. He's a very vocal opponent of Louis Riel. He wanted Canada to annex to the States also. He wanted Manitoba to annex to the States during the Red River Resistance also. We'll talk more about that as well. Oh, good. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, vocal opponent of Riel. Also, as you were saying, basically a fake doctor. He had done... At most, three years of a four-year medical degree, probably not that much, and advertised himself in Manitoba as a surgeon. So, anyway, this is the... <laughs> yikes. Yikes. This is the family connection. So, Henry McKenney Sr. Uh, was married to a woman named Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. They had Henry McKenney Jr. and uh, Augustus McKenney, who was married to a woman named Matilda. After Henry McKenney Sr. dies, Elizabeth marries William Schultz. Oh. And they have John Christian Schultz. So this is actually his half-brother. Interesting. And, okay, to be fair to John Christian Schultz, who I just finished calling a con man and a huge jerk, <laughs> he does have a pretty horrific childhood. Um, Elizabeth and William Schultz uh, do not get along. The marriage is really awful. And so they basically informally separate because divorce was difficult. Oh, right, yeah, of course. And she spends several years of John Christian's childhood basically hiding him from his father at various relatives' houses. Oh, wow. So that does sound pretty traumatic and might make you kind of a terrible person. But probably not a huge racist. Yeah, no, that's true. That probably, that, 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 that's separate. That's separate. That's his own deal. <laughs> anyway, um, another weird thing about their family dynamic, though, was that after Elizabeth died and Augustus McKenney died... Do you see where I'm going with this? Oh, <laughs> that's weird. William Schultz marries his stepson's wife. Huh. Not important to the story. I just read it, and I thought everyone needed to know. <laughs> I heard one at you in the crowd, and I agree. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, 
So, um, Henry McKenney, he writes to his half-brother, John Christian Schultz, invites him, John Christian Schultz comes, and he basically asks Schultz to be his junior business partner, because Henry McKenney has an idea. Ooh, yeah. So, he is planning to build a shop. Um, now, this is a later map. He is planning to build a shop, a store, um, where the east-west trail to, uh, to Fort Gary meets the north-south trail to Portage La Prairie. So, right up about there. Ooh. So, if you haven't guessed, that's Portage in Maine. <laughs> and this is the first thing there. So, this is a description of the store, because I could not find a photo of it. So, the house was a long two-story building, 80 feet long by 24 feet wide by 22 feet high, only lit, for the most part, on the second floor. Um, so very just like long and tall and steep. And dark. And dark also. <laughs> um, and, and a fire hazard if there's only windows on the second floor of the lighter with candles all the time. <laughs> and apparently looked singularly like Noah's Ark. Um, so a lot of people think this is a really terrible idea. So first of all, there is nothing there. Like, this map is from later after he builds his thing. At the time, this was just nothing and just him. Um... Yeah, I guess the settlement all would have been just like a little bit further up near where the McDermott store was. Yeah. Fort Gary, yeah. right? Um, upper Fort Gary, to be clear. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he ends up building this, and people are convinced that either it's going to get blown away by a tornado or it's <laughs> going to get flooded out. Hence, I think, this reference to Noah's Ark. <laughs> um, yeah. Or it's going to sink right into the mud. Well, that, <laughs> that also could happen. Fortunately, none of those do happen. Though it does end up having to be, like, propped up by several beams on either side. Classic. Yeah. It's like every old building in Winnipeg around that time. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh, we built it in a bog. Oops. Again. Oops, all bogs. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so he's doing actually uh, pretty well with this store. Um, They're doing all financially. He's becoming, you know, a noted member of the community. People are also kind of building up around this area. He's essentially single-handedly created this kind of, like, commercial hub. Mm-hmm. Which he's actually a little bit annoyed about because it blocks his view of the river. <laughs> oh, he picked it for the scenery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but overall, he's doing really well, with the exception of one thing. Mm-hmm. He is not getting along with his half-brother and business partner, <laughs> John Christian Schultz. What? Someone not getting along? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Schultz and McKenney are, yeah, really not getting along. They end up breaking up their business partnership in about 1864. So this is at most four years before they opened the store together. So not long. Not long. Um, And after they break up the business partnership, the court cases between these two go on for years. (laughs) What are they suing each other for? Oh, just like various debts that like the business Mm -hmm. owed or like that they owed each other. Various things. Um, And so... um, You made me lose my train of thought. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) They were suing each other. They were suing each other. And so at first these keep getting delayed because because Henry McKenney is off on like various trading trips. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's his job, right? He has to go and like get supplies. And then they get further delayed because John Christian Schultz is furious about this and insults the judges and is banned from the courthouse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. So one of these lawsuits, what it is, is that um, a creditor is suing both of them for a debt that they owed. Mm -hmm. And so Henry McKenney, he pays his half, it's like 300 pounds, he's like, okay, fine. But what happens with John Christian Schultz is he doesn't want to pay it, except that he is also not allowed in the courtroom, and so there's a default judgment against him. Yeah, I could see how that would be a problem. 
you could see how he might not be terribly happy about this. <laughs> um, and so he refuses to pay. Should have thought about that before he insulted the judges so much he got kicked out. <laughs> to be clear also, if you guys think that the judges were not being fair, they did just say he could apologize and then come back. <laughs> oh, and he just he said no? Oh, he just said no. He also could have sent a proxy. Also no. <laughs> so he demands a new trial. They're like, no, you just actually have to pay this. And he refuses. So for several months, he's refusing. Eventually, the magistrates send the sheriff to enforce this debt. The sheriff, who happens to be... Henry McKenney. <laughs> so, little conflict of interest here. Mm -hmm. Oh, but I'm sure he was so excited. <laughs> Can you imagine getting told to do that? You're like, finally, I get to one-up Oh, I'm gonna get that money. <laughs> so, he goes to Schultz's store, which Schultz has since opened as his own thing in the meantime. And basically, of course, insists that he repay this debt. Schultz, of course, says no. Mm -hmm. And so... McKenney instructs the two constables who are with him to gather a bunch of goods in lieu. So they have like their arms full of goods and McKenney goes to open the door to let them out. And this is what happens. The proprietor, John Christian Schultz, interposed with the object of closing the door when a scuffle ensued in the course of which after a series of struggles and confused tumbling and rolling over the floor, Schultz was bound as securely as his captors could manage with the line found in his store. Did he try and slam the door in their face? Yes. And then just got beat up? Well, basically. I mean, I think he also got some punches thrown yeah. in there. And the poor guy is bound with his own rope. Embarrassing. And embarrassing. And thrown in jail for assaulting the sheriff. What? <laughs> Funny how that shakes out. Yeah. In the meantime, by the way, they've posted a constable inside the store, basically to guard these goods, which they're supposed to come back and seize. It got kind of interrupted in the meantime. Um... Mrs. Schultz, so John Christian Schultz's wife, demands this constable leave. He says no, because he's supposed to be there. And so she actually goes around and boards up all the windows and doors, effectively trapping this constable there for, like, <laughs> for like several hours. What? Yeah. <laughs> Eventually they realize and they come and, like, let him out. But later that night, I mean, Mrs. Schultz was a force to be reckoned with. I it sounds say. like, wow. Yeah. Later that night, she assembles a mob of about 15 people, comes to the jail, they overpower the guards, and free her husband, John <laughs> A mob of 15 seems pretty underwhelming. That's true. But, but I, mean, I guess it's a guard force of, like, what, two people? Yeah. I mean, if 15 people come into this, like, tiny little jail, yeah. it'll, it'll probably do it. They also, I feel like this is a repeating pattern, is that when people got freed from jail, they never seemed all that interested in rearresting them. No, they would like maybe think about it a little bit and go, no, yeah. we know he's somewhere in town. <laughs> yeah, so that's exactly what happens. But um, what's interesting and kind of fun for me as a historian about this story is that John Christian Schultz was part owner at the time of the Norwester, the local newspaper. And so in the papers, there's a very different version of this story. Oh! <laughs> what he says is basically like these simple-minded judges had made a totally unfair judgment against him. So when the sheriff came, he didn't hit him. He just threw him. Oh. So, and then voluntarily allowed himself to be tied up and brought peacefully to jail. And okay, his wife was not assembling a mob to let him out. She was just bringing him dinner. And then a mob spontaneously formed, okay? <laughs> so... I mean, I guess theoretically you could believe either of these stories. Not all of them together. No. 
Um, I will say also the thing that makes me doubt Schultz's story a little bit is this is not the only time he uses the old wife bringing me dinner ruse <laughs> to get him out of prison. He later does the same thing when Louis Riel imprisons right? him. Yeah. But just to finish up Henry McKenney's story, because we've gotten sidetracked with good old Schultz here. It's hard not to with the amount of jailbreaks this guy gets into. Yeah, so you had mentioned this like kind of minority cohort of people who wanted Manitoba to join the U.S. Mm -hmm. instead of Canada. So um, Henry McKenney is actually also one of those people. And so shortly after the Canadian government comes to Red River, he actually leaves. Um, and there are some rumors about why that might be. Oh. So this is a source from the time suggesting that there are rumors in Red River that basically those failed businesses that he left behind in Eastern Canada involved a lot of debts that he maybe hadn't paid back. Uh-oh. So they suggested that he may have been worried that the Canadian government would come in and be like, wait, aren't you that guy <laughs> who ripped off like a ton of people in Ontario? How much would you have to owe for someone to be like, wait a minute, we know this guy from out east. Yeah, and I mean, it never really materializes. It could just be a total rumor. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, he actually does briefly come back to run for city council. Oh, okay. Which he then uh, loses and then permanently moves to the States. Okay. So that's the end of Henry McKenney. But I thought I'd just finish up with a couple pictures here of um, what Portage and Maine looked like over the years. So this is 1872. And I think in this picture, we're basically standing on the steps of Henry McKenney's shop. So I think it would have been kind of behind us here looking towards the river. I think so. I could be wrong. This is just a few years later. And then this is less than 30 years after Henry McKenney for, uh, started that shop on Portage and Maine. That's City Hall in the background there also. Yeah, back there. So yeah, it was a pretty good idea. He basically single-handedly begun the kind of center of the city. Yeah, our big like infamous intersection. Yeah. Because of this one guy who built a bar. Yeah, <laughs> a shop. <laughs> a shop. He ran a bar also. All right, yeah. <laughs> Because his bar was the uh, source of what was called the first bar fight in the West. Do you want to tell us that story? Yeah, let's see if I can remember it very well, because it was over the uh, annexing to the state's dispute. Yeah. Where basically, there's not like a lot of bars in Red River, there's a couple, but they were holding these like party meetings. So it was like Schultz, and I don't think McKenney, because his hotel had been bought by a Dutch George Emerling. Yeah, he got rid of the hotel after he, yeah, yeah after he bought the... George Emerling wasn't Dutch also. We don't know where he came from. <laughs> but they're having this big like... We should annex to the states meeting, and then a bunch of Canadian party members arrive to talk about like we should annex to Canada, and a huge bar fight erupts at McKenney's old bar over this one like really weird technicality. Yeah, and that's the story of our first bar fight. <laughs> Great, I love that we have that documented. So I thought I would talk about uh, the matinee girl, Harriet Anderson Walker. So she is the wife of Corliss Walker, who. Together, they helped build the Walker Theater in the city. She's really interesting. She was on my list, and we'll have to talk about her at some point because she's very cool. Yeah. Um, she is born, Harriet Anderson, called Hattie, and uh, she's born in New York City, and she gets her start in theater because her father is in, like, a bunch of fraternal organizations. They, okay. He was described as an inveterate lodge member. Huh. So he's in, like, every lodge he could. And then, obviously, he's a single father. He's got this, like, six-year-old daughter. What does he do with her? Leaves her in a theater in New York City for a couple of hours. Oh, okay. Finds her later. All right. I mean, classic single father. <laughs> I leave her for a bit. I say that as my single father's in the audience and never did that, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> so she winds up getting involved in theater and getting interested. And she starts doing recitals. Because, of course, this is the era when recitals are a big form of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> Just reading out poems to each other at parties. 
So she starts doing that and then starts acting for the Union Square Company. She's young at the time, so she's playing, like, boys a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, according to a phrenologist... <laughs> Always a good way to start a sentence. She could have been an actress, a uh, teacher, or an author. Apparently her father took her to the phrenologist. Oh. This dad's, like, batting a hundreds right. on, like, single fatherhood. Making a lot of interesting choices? Yeah. Regardless, she was an actress for quite some time. Um, this is a picture of her in the Chimes of Normandy when she's a little younger. She winds up doing so while she goes on tour, essentially, and she travels around the States into, the, into Canada a little bit in these, like, big traveling productions. And it's when she's traveling, she gets cast in the play um, A Bunch of Keys, or The Hotel. She um, plays Teddy, and the cast is uh, Teddy Keys, a wild rosebud with the accompanying thorns, Rose Keys, her sister, also of the rose variety, but more of the primrose order, Mm. May Keys, sister of Teddy, the last of the bunch of keys, and Gilly Spooner, a rural masher who's engaged to Rose. What's a masher? I don't know. Is it like is it like a cad? Maybe. You know, like a like a <laughs> That's a good guess actually. Like okay, like an ass boy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Probably. Um, there's also Littleton Snags, Esquire, a legal gentleman. Oh. And a Jay Fisk, a dealer in lightning rods. Huh. And I was trying to find out what like the plot to this was, because this play is pretty pivotal to Armstrong Arts and Art to uh, Walker's life. Um, the only program I could find is from an earlier show. The program for it is bad. I'm just gonna give you a quick walkthrough of what my research experience here was like. <laughs> um, I find this thing for uh, Green's Opera House, The Grand. You'll notice it doesn't say what show is playing. This is the first page. We go to the second page. Oh, still nothing. Huh. It's all ads. Third page. There it is. The- <laughs> Okay. Wait, this is the program? Yes. Oh. This is not even, it's spread out over about 16 pages. The cast isn't on here. This is the start of the description. Next page. Nothing. And it's just that for 16 pages. So it took, it was so annoying to read through. But I did find a summary of all of the acts of the play. And basically what's going on is that the Keys sisters are left a hotel by their uncle when he dies. Um, little Tim Snags, Esquire, the lawyer involved, tries to like scam them out of it. Okay. By having a contest and saying whoever is the most homely of the sisters wins the hotel. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you want to win that competition. No, and none of the girls want to enter it. Um, the description of it in this program is more confusing. It is what I sent you earlier today. Oh, okay. I sent Alex a thing and told her she couldn't open it until tonight. Okay, and cruelly and unusually sent it to me at like 11.30 a.m. I've yeah. had to not look at this for many hours. Okay. Am I reading this? Yes. Yeah. Okay, it says, can I read the title as well? Yeah. Okay, the funniest of funny scenes. Hotel opened. Enough provisions for a regiment. All run it according to law. We must see the will. They try the safe. Grimes remembers, remember the bells. Teddy's desire to give a ball. Guests arrive. Opera singers, politician, lightning rod agent. Have a drink. Matilda's search. The proposal. Snag's not drunk, but sleepy. The suicide. Okay. That is the summary of Act 2. <laughs> huh. Do you have a strong idea of what this play is about? N- well, apparently, um, Snag's not drunk. He's only sleepy. So I know that. Mm-hmm. They have to remember the bells. What bells, though? L- all the bells. Can't forget, can't forget any of the bells. No, I have no idea what that's about. Also, like, the thing, the, the suicide, that just comes the out The funniest nowhere. of all scenes. The funniest of all scenes. Ends with a suicide. Yeah. Classic. 
Classic 1800s humor, I think. <laughs> Regardless, this is the play that she is cast in. She plays Teddy, she's the main character, and she is on tour. She reaches Fargo, and she's playing at the Fargo Opera House when she meets uh, Corless Powers Walker. He is the manager of this theater. He's the manager of a couple of theaters by this point. He's the son of a minister. His family owns a bunch of print shops. He leaves the family business to go into basically organizing theatrical performances. He meets her. They hit it off. Um, they get married. And he calls her Teddy the rest of their lives. Aww. It's very cute. That's very sweet. So together, the couple moves to Winnipeg in 1897. So we're entering kind of our boom period here. There's a lot going on in the city. But what the walkers feel is that Winnipeg doesn't have good theater yet. Okay. We've got a bunch of like people performing in hotels, essentially, but they think they can do better. Yeah. So they buy out the Winnipeg Theater, which is built as the Bijou Opera House. Um, famously, it burned down in like 1926. This is probably what it's most known for. <laughs> but um, the Walkers owned it in 1897 as part of what he called his breadbasket circuit. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, it's, I think reference to like wheat, essentially, but it's a, basically a, oh, a theater circuit that travels the prairies, okay. and Winnipeg is the heart of it. And between the two of them, obviously... Corless Walker has been managing theater, so he has connections in that world, and Harriet Walker has been performing for years at this mm -hmm. point, so she knows a lot of actors. Right. So they begin to, like, organize talent, and their first big show isn't even, like, a play. They get, like, a bunch of cyclists to come and do a little performance outside of the theater on the street. Okay, like trick cycling? Yeah. Okay. But also, you have to remember, this is a time when cycling is new. That's true. Cycling is new and exciting. They get a bunch of, like, female cyclists to come in and do tricks. I mean, that's pretty, like, daring. There was a lot of hysteria over, like, female cyclists. Yeah. Um, I think what they had not accounted for is that Winnipeg was still largely men, many of whom were working on the railroad, and got very excited there were new girls in town. Oh, no. And spent the entire performance week trying to wine and dine these performers. <laughs> Meaning the performers were consistently late, they were consistently drunk. <laughs> it got to the point that Corless had to walk or lock their leading star in the theater overnight so she wouldn't go out and party again. Yeah, I mean, I guess trick cycling is probably a hard thing to do after, like, a couple tricks. Yeah, apparently it was a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. But it worked enough for them. They kept going. Their theater grew and it grew. And the walkers wind up loving it in Winnipeg, even the winters. Aww. So apparently they would go around and they would travel quite often and they would talk to their old friends being like, oh, like you have to come up to Winnipeg sometime. And the friends would go, I don't, like it's cold up there. I don't want to go. And what Harriet would say is, it's a dry cold. You barely feel it. <laughs> so that is a saying that has been going on since about 1900. Yeah. <laughs> so she becomes a Winnipeg booster and a theater booster. And she starts writing for a paper called The Town Topics in 1898. The Town Topics still exists, just not in... Winnipeg, for some reason. This is what we have at the Manitoba Archives. This is not the fault of the archivist. I don't know why this is what we have. Um, this is handwritten notes on what's in every single edition of the town topics. That's so much more work than just putting the town topics in the archive. Yeah, um, this one is Need for an Art School. Oh. That's what the article is. I don't know what the argument is. That's what we have. So I don't really know what Walker was actually writing in these things. You'd have to go to McGill. So you had to go to Montreal to find them. Uh, this happens to us a lot. Yeah. But it's published by uh, Charles Hanscom in Winnipeg. It's the big, like, arts and culture newspaper in the city. And when Harriet starts writing for them, she's publishing under the name Rosa Sub. Okay. So it's a pseudonym. She's calling herself the Matinee Girl. It's a play on Sub Rosa, which means, like, incognito or, like, undercover. Ah. So she basically sends it in with no return address to Hanscom. And he publishes part of it. Not all of it. And then she writes a second letter being like, if you ever do that again, you'll never get another review from me. <laughs> I mean, good for her. And then he publishes in full. He doesn't know that it's Harriet Walker. Her yeah. husband doesn't know she's doing this. No one does. Oh, so she's just like at home, like 
leaving the dinner table early to be like to write little like screeds to the local newspaper about plays she's been seeing like secretly her husband comes in and she's like nothing she's like closing the door over desk and stuff yeah. yeah um apparently though there's a bunch of debate about who this could be because walker was writing with like a good deal of inside knowledge mm. into the theater but she was writing it as though she were like a giddy teenager going to see a show oh that's kind of cute apparently they're very fun um by about 1906 is kind of an open secret in the city um and because she becomes popular for this and her writing and her knowledge of theater, people start just sending her scripts yeah. constantly. Even though they're bad, she'll read them. She reads every script that's ever sent to her. Okay. And then sends back feedback. Yeah. Which is very sweet of her. She also opens up like a lending library in her house. So any place she owns, she will send it out if someone asks for it. Oh, that's really nice. Um, she also gets big opinions on um, other writers. This is Heinrich Ibsen. Um, she gets so many plays inspired by Ibsen's work that she hates him. She hates Ibsen. <laughs> she tells people she wishes Ibsen had died before he wrote the play Ghosts. Oh my god. <laughs> she is actively wishing this man dead. <laughs> so, not a big fan of Ibsen. I think mostly because the people that were writing in works inspired by him annoyed her so right. much. But, the com- so she's the theater's press agent too on top of all this. So she's the one writing all of the press copy to like the free press and the Tribune. <sighs> and they grow their theater. She becomes part of the press co- club. As well, she's one of the founders of the Women's Press Club. Mm-hmm. Um, the Press Club is fun for me because they used to do a thing called Beer and Skits. Okay. Have you heard about Beer and Skits? No. It was this big, like, annual party around New Year's they would do where they would, everyone, every report in the city would go and they would get drunk and they would do skits. And they would put it in a yearbook. And I don't think anyone could ever get away with putting in what they did. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, this is an ad from Eaton's. Sure is great to be a stone's throw from my friends at Simpson Sears. Holding a big old rock. A little aggressive. Um, this next one oh, is from the Red River X. Uh, it's a whole breast. Okay. Yeah. They're exhibitionists. Um, and then this is the ad for Manitoba Hydro. Great. We're loving the boobs. Very boob heavy, I would yeah. say. So, d- cancel it. We're done. <laughs> it's pretty bad. But because of their success with Harriet's work as the press club and um, Corliss's experience, like getting acts to come in, they decided to build their own theater. This is the plan for the Walker Theater. It's based on a Chicago theater. It's going to be a like mixed use thing with like a hotel and a restaurant, and ultimately that's all that gets built. Oh. <laughs> so if you've seen the Burton Cummings today, there's kind of that grand entrance and then kind of like smooth brick all around. It's because it was supposed to be cased by this. There's just not funding for it. That's essentially what happens here. Yeah. But it's a pretty elaborate construction process building just that one entrance. And the construction of this building is impressive. They're going for new state-of-the-art technology. Both of them are very concerned about fires in their theaters, which is very forward and really smart. So like this building is state-of-the-art and how fireproof it is. There are like um, special curtains that won't burn up. There's steel doors that slam shut. There's ventilation in the roof hmm. to stop like smoke damage from occurring. Thankfully, the building's never caught fire, so we've never had to test any of this. But hypothetically, it was one of the most, or if not the most, fire-safe theater in the city. Yeah. Which is fitting, because the other theater they owned, the Winnipeg Theater, did burn down. Oh. <laughs> that was a wood frame building that was covered in bricks. Yeah. So when the fire caught, the brick walls just collapsed, essentially. Was that before they built the wall? After. After, okay. They'd sold the theater by that point. Oh, okay. But the Walker Theater here is huge. It is <clears throat> elaborate. The inside's very fancy. It still is if you go inside there today. Mm-hmm. They've got a As You Like It quote, or Midsummer's Night Dream quote along the wall. They've got these cheap upper-level seats called the gods at the time. Yeah. They were 25 cents each. It's why the seats aren't as nice up there also. 
but it was to get um, working class people to come into the theater because they thought theater should be for everyone, even if it was like artsy fartsy opera stuff. That's really nice. It was. They would also do like these really big productions of stuff like Ben Hur. Right. And the Ben Hur production's crazy essentially because they brought out treadmills on the stage and had live horses come in because Ben Hur is famous for its chariot races. So they did the chariot race on stage. Uh, like they got a horse-sized treadmill. Is that what you're? Yeah. Doing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they raced horses on the stage at the birth. Wow. Um, it's also where the Mock Parliament happens. So, because uh, Walker was so involved with the press and the press club, she met Cora Hind. Hind is, of course, another reporter in the city. She's the first female reporter in uh, Western Canada. She works for the Free Press as a grain reviewer, essentially. So she's always like wearing men's pants and tromping through fields. Yeah. Um, Harriet Walker's daughter described her as pretty intimidating, but generally nice. <laughs> but this group of women then gets involved with uh, the Bayman sisters who write for the Grain Growers Guide, and they become involved in basically the Women's Political Equality League to get women the right to vote. And because Walker has this great big venue, when they start talking about holding the mock parliament, she's got the space for it. That's so cool. I had never thought about the fact that it was also like a woman-run theater, kind of. Yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways, like, people, I think, would credit Corliss more for the running of it, but she was, like, hand-in-hand with him the entire way on this. And she was not in the play itself, so she, I think, did more of the directing than any of the actual performing, because obviously Nellie McClung is the star of the show yeah. for the mock parliament. But she was involved pretty heavily in that, and she never really like performed professionally in the city. Even though she loved acting, she would go in amateur theatricals all the time. Mm-hmm. But when she was in the city, she was purely here to help direct and help produce. Though once on vacation, she met a friend who was sick and wanted to get out of a contract, and she went, I'll cover that contract for you. And then just worked for two weeks as an actor. Oh. <laughs> Her family was going to go to Florida and they didn't. Wow. They stayed in Chicago. Hmm. But it's a really cool legacy of someone like Boosting Winnipeg Theatre who believed in this city and this right to have theatre so much. Yeah. And also spent her entire life saying, the cold's not bad. You don't feel it. That was her stick her whole life. Her daughter has a book about this, essentially. I love that we settled on that so early and we were like, this is the only defense we need. It's dry. You don't notice it. The other thing I had learned about uh, Harriet Walker and her family is they had seven dogs. That's a lot. Um, And people told her that. They'd go, don't you think that's too many dogs? And she'd go, Yes, it's entirely too many. I'm, I'm trying to think of some kind of dog walker pun here, but it's not no. coming. I'm sorry. I like it, though. Yeah. They also, one of their dogs, Charlie, was also apparently pretty fat. Aww. Um, they, they hired a contractor to come in and build a dog treadmill or a dog hamster wheel in their house <laughs> to help Charlie lose weight. And they hired some French guy from St. Boniface, and he called Charlie Le Petit Gourmand. Aww. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so I want to do more on the Walker Theater and stuff, but she would have been a really fun one for the series. She just... We were talking about the strike and other stuff, and we talked about the mock parliament already. We spent a lot of time in, like, that time period. Yeah. We yeah. did. So I'll pass it on to you, because right. you've got a sort of more fun one, I think. Um, so I've got uh, William Stevenson. So he is purported by some to be the inspiration, or at least one of the inspirations, behind Ian Fleming's character, James Bond. Okay, so the most well-known book about uh, William Stevenson... Um, is this book here. So it's written in the uh, 1970s. It's called A Man Called Intrepid, and it's written by this guy, also bizarrely named William Stevenson, but with a V. So I made you guys a handy diagram here so you don't get confused. (laughs) Um, And from that book, we know the following. So about William Stevenson's early life, he was born January 11th, 1896, the coldest day in Winnipeg history. His father, William Victor Stevenson, was of Scottish descent and owned a lumber mill. His father was then killed at war when Stevenson was five years old. 
His mother, Christine Stevenson, was of Norwegian descent, and he attended Argyle High School. But wait. Ooh. That's actually all incorrect. What? <laughs> so, in the 1990s, um, this guy, Bill McDonald, who's a journalist who's originally from Winnipeg, um, he starts looking into some of these claims, uh, or not even claims, they're just facts of William Stevenson's early life, for, to write his own book on William mm. Stevenson. And he finds the following. First of all, William Stevenson was born in 1897. It was not the coldest day in Winnipeg history. In fact, it wasn't even the coldest day that year. I looked it up. <laughs> and maybe most interestingly, William Stevenson was not born William Stevenson. What? So, okay, let's start over and make some corrections here. William Samuel Clouston Stanger was born January 23rd, 1897, on a pretty cold day. <laughs> uh, when William Stevenson was four, his father did in fact die, um, and he was actually of Scottish descent, but he died due to a muscle disorder. He was never at war. And so what happened was that his biological mother, Sarah, was basically left with three children to raise and without the means to do so, with her husband having passed away. And so she does essentially an informal adoption. She gives one of her children away. Oh. To her good friends, Kristen and Vigfus Stevenson. Oh. <clears throat> Both of Icelandic descent. So William Stevenson actually spent his childhood speaking Icelandic. They spoke Icelandic in their home. It's odd to me that that's something that's been just like completely erased yeah. from his history. Um, also, Vigfus didn't own a lumber mill. He just worked at one. And finally, William Stevenson did not attend Argyle High School because there wasn't one at the time. Oh. <laughs> he attended Argyle Elementary School and according to his relatives, dropped out after around sixth grade because he had to go work. It was super common yeah. at the time. So, so I'm seeing a lot of inconsistencies here. Yes, already. and so, like, I don't want to spend too long on this, but do you have thoughts on, like, how that kind of thing happens? Like, why do historians get things wrong? I mean, it's either, like, they read a source and they don't, like, double-check it. If we're relying on, like, humans' memory also, it's yeah. so, like, fallible all the time, right? You have to back up. If someone said, oh, I heard it from this high school. Yeah. You should probably always check if that high school existed at the time. Yeah. Because even if it exists now and we know it's like, oh, it's been around for ages. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, Bill McDonald actually calls up William Stevenson with a V and asks him about these inconsistencies mm -hmm. in his book. And William Stevenson with a V says, I'm actually late for an appointment. <laughs> okay, this is actually, I will say, a little bit unfair of me. He says a little bit more than this. He says that basically there's not a great deal I can help you with because I just accepted his account of his life. I had no reason to question that he was telling me the oh, truth. Oh, so this is from... Stevenson, originally. Is, yes, those facts are from William Stevenson. So Bill McDonald is accused by some of just kind of like nitpicking. Like none of those are super important facts of William Stevenson's life. But it is really interesting that William Stevenson, with a PH, was not maybe a reliable narrator of his own life. Right, yeah. It makes it really difficult to tell you guys a story about his life. <laughs> In any case, um, William Stevenson, he was genuinely a war hero. So he, in 1916, he was working in a telegraph office, but he signs up to go off to the First World War. Um, and he's actually gassed less than a week after being sent to the front. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so he's sent back to England to recover. But after he's recovered just a little bit, he basically insists on joining the Flying Corps, the RAF. And he apparently still at the time looks like pale and sickly. Like this is not a man who's entirely well. <laughs> and you maybe don't want him flying a plane. Well, except that during the First World War, being a fighter pilot was essentially a suicide mission. 
yeah, they okay. were like pilots were dying faster than they could be recruited. So, like Stevenson himself said, if I was destined for an early grave, I wanted to dig it myself. All right. Yeah. Um, and so they let him in. They're like, okay, if you want to. And it turns out he is totally within his element as a fighter pilot. He is just really good at it. These are a bunch of medals that he was given for skill and bravery. Um, he shoots down at least 12 enemy planes, but it could have it could be much more. Okay. We don't we don't know 100%. Um, but he is in 1918 shot down over enemy lines and taken prisoner by the Germans. And from his time in this POW camp, we get the great can opener conspiracy. <laughs> okay. So, there's this thing that the the prisoners in this POW camp were doing, which is that Basically, they were bored, and so they'd started making little bets with each other to see, like, who could steal what. <laughs> so, okay. I guess, like, it was something to do, but also, like, a kind of small way of getting back at their captors, right? Yeah. So, one day, William Stevenson comes to his friend in the camp, Tommy, and he's super excited because he's got this can opener. And Tommy's like, I, I didn't really get it. <laughs> but what happened was that um, on the can opener, there's this, the patent that says Germany 1915. Mm -hmm. So basically, Germany's been at war this whole time. They haven't been able to sell this new type of can opener outside of their allied countries. Right. So William Stevenson's big, like, get-rich-quick scheme is that he is going to steal this can opener, escape the POW camp, <laughs> bring it back to Canada, and make a fortune. On can openers. On can openers. Okay. He does do the first two of those things. He, esca he escapes with his can opener. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. So Tommy, the guy who... Um, originally was shown this can opener and relayed the story, said, I think Bill is still a little sensitive about this story. <laughs> <laughs> William Stevenson himself said to one of his biographers, all references to non-existent tin opener must be removed. <laughs> so, so this was a rough time for him. This was a rough time. William Stevenson denied fully that this even ever happened. And in that book, A Man Called Intrepid, it is not in there. Interesting. But I can tell you for sure, Sabrina, there was a can opener. Really? <laughs> so here's an ad I found in the Tribune for clean cut can opener. Here's another one I found in Henderson directory. And no, listen, hold on, that last one said eliminates all chance of cut hands. I mean, <laughs> so simple even a child can use it. Yeah, I mean, it was a new type. It took the lid off entirely. Oh, okay. So it was a new thing. Yeah, I guess cans would have been dangerous. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it does have, like, it has, like, a rotating wheel with a little knife. It's How well does it work, though, is the question. I mean, listen, I, <laughs> I haven't tried it myself. Okay, fair, the fair. advertisements say pretty well. But this ad obviously has his name right on it, so that's pretty hard to deny. <laughs> <laughs> um, along with his business partner, Charles Wilfred Russell. And for a couple of years, from all appearances, they're actually doing really well with this little hardware business that they started. Like, William Stevenson is driving around town in a new convertible. He manages Ooh. to move his parents into, like, a nicer neighborhood. But by 1922, this ad is not in the Henderson directory anymore because they have filed for bankruptcy. Uh-oh. Yeah. And also, their office mysteriously has a fire where all of their papers are lost. <laughs> 
okay. suspicious. To be fair, actually, that's not necessarily mysterious. There were just a lot of fires then. We were always burning things down left and right. <laughs> yeah. In any case, there are a lot of creditors who don't get paid back, um, including apparently a lot of people within the Icelandic community, like people who William Stevenson's parents knew. Oh, no. Would put their money into this. So I think that's probably why he... Didn't want to bring it why up. Why he didn't want to bring this up. And he basically makes himself scarce. He moves to England. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is that he completely reinvents himself in England. Okay. So by 1923, the London Daily Mail is touting him as a brilliant scientist and a leader of industry. Now, a leader of industry you can kind of become, right? Yeah. A brilliant scientist, though, that's a little trickier when you only have a sixth grade education. Yeah. Now, that's not to put down anyone who has a sixth grade education, but like, that's a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. Especially when you've, you know, just a couple of years ago come out of... A POW camp. A POW camp. It's like, when, when did he do that education? Um, but what he's claiming essentially is that he's invented this new machine that can wirelessly transmit photographs. Now, this is a real machine. Um, it did exist. It did work and everything. The part where I'm a little bit doubtful is that I don't think he fully invented it. I think maybe he had a hand in like making some tweaks to it. Okay. Like he was a guy who really loved gadgets. He was a guy who was intellectually curious. But I think more so he was a guy who presented himself really well. He was mm-hmm. a good leader, a good organizer. And so within a year, he's actually the managing director of a radio and television company. And he's made investments in some pretty good areas because radio and television in the 20s, I mean, that's a good place to be. Yeah. So he makes himself a good bit of money. He also, by 1924, is marrying a wealthy American heiress, which is a great way also to make more money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think essentially what William Stevenson did was he sort of faked it until he made it, right? Um, But getting into the kind of actual James Bond spy stuff, in the 1930s, William Stevenson, so he's become this like multi-millionaire, wealthy businessman. Mm-hmm. He's going around to various countries making business deals. And while in Germany, what he realizes is that some of the factories that are meant to be producing things like radio parts, which is what he's interested in, are actually producing um, weapons in contravention of the Treaty of Versailles. Oh. Which they're not supposed to be doing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So he begins passing that information to Winston Churchill. At the time, um, just an MP. He wasn't prime minister yet, so maybe a little easier to reach, I guess. (laughs) Probably, yeah. But this is how he ends up connecting and gaining the trust of Winston Churchill, who in 1940, during the uh, Second World War, but before the Americans had joined, and once Winston Churchill is prime minister, he secretly sends William Stevenson to New York City to set up the British security coordination. Hmm. So... They were in Rockefeller Center, and their cover story was basically that they were like an extension of the British passport office. But what they were actually doing was engaging in propaganda to try to convince the Americans to join the war effort. Huh. Because America had this history of being this isolationist country, right? They didn't Mm -hmm. want to get involved. And so, yeah, they're engaging in this propaganda. And then once the Americans join the war, they become basically an intelligence hub. So William Stevenson is at the head of this. What's interesting is, like... This can opener stuff earlier seemed a little con-y, a yeah. little con artisty. He does all this without ever taking a salary. Okay. I think he had made his money and now he was like, I would like an adventure. I would like to be a spy for a little I'd bit. I'd like to please. be a spy for a bit. So because I spent too long talking about can openers, we don't have time to talk about a lot of spy activities. <laughs> but I will mention a couple of things that are neat. 
Um, so first of all, William Stevenson helped to set up Camp X. This was a secret spy training school in Whitby, Ontario. Um, and there's also a really cool aspect here of um, women's history because the majority of BSC operatives were women, most of them Canadian women. Huh. So they were obviously doing things like administration, but also things like uh, code breaking or like proper actual spy stuff like seducing Nazis. So this woman here, Amy Elizabeth Thorpe, this was what she was famous for, was basically um, seducing Nazis and Nazi sympathizers and like stealing information. Wow. So there is like genuine spy history here as well. <laughs> but I chose to talk. We're, we're into can openers with we're this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but among the things that the uh, British security, that the British security coordination did were forms of petty sabotage. This mm -hmm. is not the most important thing really that they did, but I just found these really interesting. These were basically ways of inconveniencing Nazis as much as they possibly could. So they would do things like calling Nazis late at night over and over. Be <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, wrong number. So like prank calling them. Yeah, letting the air out of their tires. <laughs> Sending them a bunch of stuff, cash on delivery. <laughs> Sending letters to their girlfriends claiming they had a mistress or an unpleasant disease. <laughs> um, this one's actually my favorite. They would like forge instructions to them, sending them on long, difficult, and expensive journeys. <laughs> it's like that episode of The Office where they send Dwight, like, to yes. hired by the CIA. It's like that. Um, letting their favorite dog loose. <laughs> or hiring street musicians to play outside their window all night. <laughs> I like this as like a targeted bullying campaign. That's very funny. Yeah, so it became like almost like a game amongst British security coordination operatives to try and just, yeah, inconvenience Nazis as much as they could. And certainly there were more important things that the BSC was doing, but I just thought that this was interesting because um, like it's interesting to think about the little things that go into winning a war, right? Yeah. The things that beyond sort like of- Like playing yakety sacks outside of a Nazi's window all night long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I thought we'd finish up by talking about whether William Stevenson was in fact the inspiration behind James Bond. And there are for sure reasons to think so. So first of all, Ian Fleming and William Stevenson were in fact good friends. Mm -hmm. uh, they knew each other very well. He knew about all his like spy stuff. Um, he definitely had like a love of gadgetry, right? That we see in James Bond. Um, and there's also this. So these are William Stevenson's World War I attestation papers. There you There's a 007 in there. Now, it is, it is kind of in the middle of the number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe just a coincidence. You know, yeah. there are limited number combinations. Um, so there are certainly different takes on this. Um, one of Ian Fleming's biographers wrote, for Fleming, Stevenson was almost everything a hero could be. But a family friend of the Stevensons said, that's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so let's give the last word here, though, to Ian Fleming himself mm -hmm. to see what he said about it. So this is a quote that I had seen quite a bit and found quite convincing. People often ask me how closely the hero of my thrillers, James Bond, resembles a true live secret agent. The real thing is Sir William Stevenson. Now, like I say, I found this pretty convincing. What I found a little suspicious was this ellipses... Right here. Mm. Well, there's two ellipses. Yeah, I'm seeing like some stuff might have been cut out. Yeah, those ellipses are actually doing a lot of work. When I happened across the original source of this quote, I found out that it is actually quite a bit. 
so wow. The way I understand this quote is basically he's saying James Bond is not real. <laughs> real spies are different, but certainly he thought William Stevenson was a hero. And I don't know, there's something to be said, especially for someone like William Stevenson, where so many of the facts of his life are just fudged. There's something to be said for like, not letting the facts get in the way of a good story. Right, yeah, of course. And it does give us a little claim to James Bond, which I think is fun. Yeah. So I'm not going to say for sure that he was not the inspiration. Could be. Could be. We'll leave it on that. <laughs> All right. Okay, so I put 150 candles into a genie's cake. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we'll be finishing up tonight. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of discussion between Alex and I about how this would look. Yeah. Um, I thought, surely it would be a thing where we put a bunch of candles on the top and a bunch on the sides. And I just felt like that wasn't trying hard enough. Alex thought we could do this. And you can tell which one of us of the two is the artist here. It's Alex. Um, so before the show, what I spent my valuable time today doing was putting 150 candles into a cake. This is the grand reveal. It's a lot of candles in a very small cake. I couldn't fit them all on the top, so there's some in the side. I've kind of given like a rocket look. And it's really these guys that meant I couldn't take it here today because this box is not made to accommodate any more width on the side than it already has. You mean they didn't design the box for jeans cakes to hold 150 candles? No, they did not. And that's a real flaw in their design. Yeah. Also, um, we couldn't bring it here today, in part because we thought it'd be fun to light it. And obviously there are a whole host of reasons we can't light 150 candles in a library. (laughs) But this is uh, Winnipeg's birthday. So I'm glad you came out to celebrate it with us and learn some more about our city's history and some of the like cast of characters that call it home. It's nice to see so many people that came out yeah, to learn so about lovely. this on a Wednesday night in the middle of kind of a dreary November day. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be taking some questions and then we will let you all uh, go free for the night. Please take more dainties and drinks at the end too. But yeah, if there's any questions, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. What is the Walker Theater now? Uh, the Walker Theater is now the Burton Comics Theater. It's gone through a whole host of names over the years. It was the Odeon, and then the Walker again, and now it's the Burton. Now it's a performance venue owned by True North Entertainment. Well, also the name of it right now, the Burton Cummings, I think had some um, conditions on it. Right, yes. Right, Nick? You talked about that. Yeah, uh, Burton was supposed to play a dozen shows over a dozen years, and he did not. <laughs> oh! And then they threatened to take the name away, and then he made a new deal a few years ago. Uh, as of right now, he has only played two shows, uh, which were his birthday shows or something a year or two ago. Huh. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we'll see if he honors his commitment, if it stays the Burton Cummings Theater for another 10 years. <laughs> yeah? Where did you hear about Ginger Snuff? Oh, Ginger Snuff. I was doing uh, tours downtown. Wait, should we briefly explain who Ginger Snuff is? Ginger Snuff was a garbage man. Which I know is an underwhelming start. He was a garbage man in Winnipeg for many years. He was a little crazy, might be the nice way to put it. He basically badgered city council for over 30 years to the point that like well after his death, city council was like, man, remember that one guy that would come to yell at us all the time? Well, also they had sort of like a ginger snooks like watch in the paper. Yeah. Like if they were having a boring news day, they would just go and like find him, find Ginger, and see what he was up to that day. And he would say things like, "I don't like handkerchiefs," <laughs> or "Bathhouses are dirty." And then he get into a public fist fight with a friend in the street. I think I was doing a, I must have been doing a trolley tour or something, and they had talked about during the general strike, one lone garbage man had stayed on, and he was 86 years old. 
And I thought, I need to know more about this guy. <laughs> Perfect crank material right there. So I looked him up and then found out there's this like whole host of other stories about him. Yeah. And yeah, I've kind of fallen into a rabbit hole where I'll just like look up his name in the old newspapers and there's always a new story I haven't seen somehow. Um, we do also have a Patreon where we post <laughs> Ginger Snooks content quite a lot. Once a month, you get a new news clipping and I have probably like 15 more ready to go. <laughs> Yeah? Is there anybody alive today that you think is going to make a really good character for a podcast like this 100 years from now? Oh! <laughs> Sam Katz. <laughs> Why? His mayoral term is um, complicated. He's also pretty litigious. He so sued I me. He did sue did me. He? <laughs> okay, well, Nick, you can't just say that and stop. piece about Sam Cates, uh, which he took seriously, uh, and he sued uh, the Uniter, as well as a volunteer reporter whose first article it was. Um, we wound up giving the non-apology of, we're sorry you were offended, um, and then that fall he did not run for mayor again, so I think we won. <laughs> so I think we have to wait a while before we talk about him. <laughs> Here, do you um, want to? Yeah. What's that source? Because I was reading it, it looked really interesting. Yeah, uh, actually, it might take me a long time yeah. to get to it. Um, I think that was the journals of Alexander Begg. So he was a guy who, I mean, you know about Alexander yeah. Begg. He, he wrote quite a bit about Red River. He's like, I mean, it's a primary source, so not 100% reliable all the time, but I think he kind of knew what was going on in the area. His books are actually in the uh, local history reading room at this library. <laughs> Okay, no, it's going to take me too long. Yeah, don't do that. It's not worth it. <laughs> but yeah, Alexander Begg has, they're also on um, archive.org. A lot of his books have been digitized, so you can just go through and read his like account of like 10 years in Winnipeg in the 1870s. Yeah. He writes a lot about like the daily goings on of people in the city and buildings and stuff. Yeah, it's Begg with two G's. Actually, the map of um, where McKenney's store was, was also drawn by Alexander Begg. So, yeah. Yeah. How much? Research goes into preparing for one episode. I saw you visited the archive just to take a look at the town topics, to which then the actual archive is in my That wasn't even for an episode. That was just for fun. If that gives you a glimpse of like who I am as a person. But we we spent we put a lot of work into our episodes. I know you were saying that you would spend more time on your LZR Goulet episode than you did on your thesis. I think uh, like genuinely think I might have spent longer on yeah on one of these episodes than I did on my master's thesis. And I worked pretty hard on my master's thesis. <laughs> but yeah, normally we'll like start. We normally have a good idea of what we're working on at least a month or two in advance, and then we basically it's close to a full time job if we're like really into the topic. We will yep. spend our evenings doing research, and then yeah, I I'm fortunate. I have a compressed schedule so I can like I like rush to the archives on like second Fridays <laughs> yeah um, so we spend a lot of time doing it it's probably like a good full month of work for like a really hard episode I would say yeah I mean it does really depend like there are some episodes where there are secondary sources so books that other historians have written and those are much easier for us well to Daphne Ojig had a lot of sources Daphne Ojig was much easier to do because there are yeah there are a lot of other people who have written about her whereas sometimes we write episodes like the Goulet episode where a lot of people have written about Louis Riel but very little about 
the kind of people who surrounded him mm -hmm. has actually been documented. And so that was a lot of me going through primary sources, which is, you know, often a lot of finding things like, like the town topics thing, which are not that useful. Yeah. And often handwritten, and you have to write like old-timey handwriting, and that's a whole other hurdle, because it's very different from the way we teach handwriting now. It's not standardized. Spelling wasn't standardized. Yeah. That can be a hurdle as well. All right. I mean, I think we only have 10 minutes left for the library to be open. So. Okay, yeah, fair. We should probably not make the librarian stay super, super late. Uh, thank you so, so much for coming. If you're just here because you wanted a free night out, uh, you can check us out on Spotify as One Great History. We are on Facebook and Instagram as One Great History, and on Twitter as the number One Great History. Um, thank you so much to the Manitoba Historical Society for the support of this project, as well as the uh, Manitoba Heritage Grants Fund, uh, the Centennial Institute Grant with the Winnipeg Foundation, and of course our patrons who helped us um, afford doing a live show. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming up. We really appreciate it. Um, please take any short you want to I don't want it.